0: Oh, wait, we're here for the uh, U.S. election results. Oh, no, 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 wrong program. (laughs) Sorry about that. All right, welcome to Disrupt TV. You're in the green room, and in the green room, we actually share some interesting comments about what's going on. We get a quick preview. So we're going to go backwards um, and reverse order to introduce everyone. So Cheryl, where are you calling in from? What are you talking about today?
1: Yeah, hi, everybody. Um, I'm uh, calling from Chicago, so I'm based in Chicago. I'm with um, Demand Tech. Uh, by Acoustic. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what people can expect with the holiday season and and uh, the impact on, on retailers today.
0: Very, very cool. All right. Asha, where are you calling in from and what are you talking about today?
2: Hey, Ray. Thanks for having me on. I'm calling in from Long Island, New York. I'm going to talk about some of the Sprinkler's work on value realization and digital adoption and anything else that comes up.
0: Very, Calling cool, and you are BT150 winner. Dan, what are you talking about? And we're, oh, you're out late. What's going on here? That's right.
3: Uh, I'm calling in from London, England, and I'm going to be talking about AI in the energy industry, which is a really exciting topic.
0: Very, very cool. All right. Well, this is our show. I'm Ray Wong. We've got our awesome, my co-founder, co-host, co-presenter, and of course, the, the, really the brains behind the show, Vala. Uh, but actually the real brains behind the show is actually Elle, so our (laughs) producer. So we're about to start the show and welcome everybody uh, to the backstage and happy Friday. So I guess we're gonna do the honors, Elle.
2: All right, three, two, one.
4: Hello and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter uh, following our Twitter account, uh, Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and you can catch him almost daily on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNN, and all the other technology media outlets. In my opinion, he's one of the top uh, futurists to follow on Twitter at rwang0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to the Shruff TV.
0: Hey, thanks a lot Um, with my awesome co-host, Fala Afshar. He's being modest. (laughs) I'm going to find his book one day. I'm going to put it out there. Vala is also an author. He's one of the top people to follow. You've probably seen him in keynotes all over the place. He's on business TV and, of course, an awesome speaker and friend. but you know, thanks for everyone being on the show. We've got a lot to talk about, but first we want to thank our sponsors, Robot and Pencils. Uh, they've actually helped us a lot. And they're actually, you know, if you know them, if you're thinking about design, you're thinking about great work, uh, you know, we're giving Robots and Pencils a shout out as well. So thanks for being a sponsor. More importantly, who is on our show today? What are we leading with and what are we talking about, Vala?
4: All right, it's our privilege to have Dan Jemins, General Manager of the Data Science Center of Excellence at Shell as our first guest. Dan has led the multi-award-winning data science center of excellence since its inception in 2013, growing the team from ground up to over 160 individuals. Dan was recognized in the top 50 data leaders in the UK, and his team received the Hackett Award for data analytics the same year. Dan has been a significant contributor to the development of Shell's digital strategy, which has now delivered over one billion in cost reductions, production increase, and additional customer margins. Dan was part of the team which developed the Shell.ai brand, which is now externally recognized, and the work of his team and their impact has been recently publicized in mainstream journals like Forbes, Wall Street Journal, and Financial Times. Welcome, Dan, to Disrupt TV.
3: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And. Uh... I've been following you guys for a while. I love the show. So I'm looking forward to the
4: conversation. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for joining us uh, for uh, dinner. Uh, no, it's all yes, good. Yes, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, thank you for being here. And also, you are a Supernova Award finalist. So pretty exciting. So uh, yeah. I think the actual awards are going to be revealed at the Constellation Connected Enterprise event on the 27th, October. But hey, you've been working on data science for a while um, and AI. We're talking about big data in big oil. This is amazing. So talk a little bit about what's going on in terms of this center of excellence and how did it come about? Because not a lot of organizations put these in as early as you guys have.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we were, we were super lucky in that we got in early. Um, uh, I mean, maybe just to say, I mean, Shell's been at this for a long time. Um, you know, we can trace, if you like, the origins of my organization back to the 1970s when we started doing things like statistics and scenario planning and really led the industry in setting that, that up. Um, but I think more recently, as you mentioned, from 2013 onwards, we've been trying to figure out uh, what is this new thing that, that we call now AI? Um, I think it's been through various incarnations. Uh, predictive analytics, we called it for a while, then advanced analytics, and now of course AI. But I think at the core of it, it's quite simple. We recognize that actually the data sets are getting larger uh, the capabilities to process those data in, in the cloud is getting exponentially more effective and efficient and, and new opportunities as well as getting easier as some of the, uh, the the apis and so on become much more accessible to end users and then of course you know the the key thing is that for our business uh, the ability to provide insight back uh, to the frontline staff to make them uh, to enable them to make different decisions to change the workflows that we operate every day, that has huge potential. Uh, and I think what I what's important to recognize is that we're, a, uh, if you like, an industry in transition. We're, we're going, you know, originally, we're, as you mentioned, oil and gas is our heritage, but increasingly a lot of what we're doing is moving into the new energy space. And so we've got that energy transition happening and at the same time, uh, this new trend of digital disruption is happening. And, and those two things are really coming together. And I've been very fortunate in that Uh, Going back to that early heritage, we had a really strong set of foundations to build on. And we've been able to build a team around these new technologies, which is really starting to transform the way in which many parts of our business operate, be that the traditional parts, but also the newer parts as well. Um, And I think it's just a really exciting time because I feel like AI is just coming of age. You know, we've been testing it, we've been building capabilities around it, but we're at this inflection point where it's really becoming a mainstream theme for our business leaders where we're really seeing material impact you talked about some of the value that we're seeing from the digital transformation already um and and i just feel very lucky to be in the middle of that and, and to have been shaping a small team into now a rather larger team that's trying to figure this
0: all out but one yeah, of the interesting really... things that you've done as, as uh, Doug Henschen, so my team kind of talked about in the past as, as he worked with you guys, is that you've actually built a very effective team without having to go hire tons of data scientists. And you also went out and trained execs and line of business execs on some of these techniques. So I think that's kind of interesting to hear about how that happened.
3: Yeah, it's been super fun. I mean, I think first and foremost, I think what you have to recognize is that I mentioned it um, at the start, but we're a very technical company. You know most of the people in the organization are engineers, uh, you know chemists, uh, you know they, they have expertise in geology. so so they they have deep science backgrounds. they've They've normally got a pretty good understanding of math and and often they're writing some code and have been doing so for many years. I, and I think what we saw very clearly was that because of this deep, rich technical heritage that we had, Unlike others who maybe have to import that into the organization in one way, shape or form, our opportunity was to kind of mash up some external thinking with the existing capabilities that we had. And so Shell.ai is, is first and foremost a change program. It's about trying to embed AI in every part of our business. And to do that, you've got to think differently about you know, how do you transform from the inside, right? So how do you start to generate adoption for the operators, for the engineers who are sat at the site, the technologists, as well as of course, the data science team. And so what we've done is we came up with a number of principles of how do you do that. Um, We started off with a network and the network started as about 30 people back in 2013. Uh, It's now about (laughs) 4,000 to give you an idea. and, and so wow. that work, which is was sort of at its core, just a bunch of enthusiasts that started talking about what could do for our organization has kind of gone viral through the organization. Um, and that's been super exciting. And along the way, we've sort of figured out, well, we need to get leadership support. So we started doing some training courses for leaders, as you mentioned, in, in getting them to code in Python. Um, we actually went to some of our very mm-hmm. senior leadership teams and taught them Python coding. Um, and, and also, you know, we've also been trying to think about how do we build consistent ways of working. So build a common platform. We partnered with Udacity who've been super for us in developing a set of c- curriculums that we could roll out throughout the organization. Some for data scientists uh, or people who are trained to be data scientists, but also for what we call citizen data scientists. So people who are primarily engineers, but need some data science to now be able to do their job. And so we've been rolling this stuff out right across the organization. We're also trying to bring innovation in from the outside into the organization through new technologies in the platform space, uh, but also by working with really innovative startups that challenge our ways of thinking and through big tech tech partnerships. So working with companies like Microsoft, which we announced this week to start to uh, develop um, ecosystems where we can co-develop technology and start to accelerate that pace of change. So I think, like I said, it's been about that change program, trying to almost build a viral movement within the organization that makes it much easier to deploy AI at scale. And I mean, we talked about it earlier on this week, but we've got kind of about 48 AI applications going into production this year um, and about 160 odd projects in the pipeline. So it gives you an idea of the scale of what we're trying to do.
4: It's, uh, It's amazing scale. Uh, it's an amazing vision. Kudos to you and your team. In seven years, you've built a powerhouse capability, which every company needs, in my opinion. So, you know, when we, when you think about the centers of excellence uh, focus, you have to make shell uh, more effective and efficient. So, you want to talk about scale. And some of these numbers may be outdated, but based on my research, you've got you know 500,000 valves globally, two million machine learning models running concurrently. Uh, talk about the scale of being able to have that uh, predictive maintenance and being able to optimize equipment failure detection and prediction, leading to that billion-dollar savings that I uh, referenced in your introduction. So, efficiency and effectiveness, and then the second part is drive through this uh, energy transition uh, towards this movement towards clean energy, and Shell clearly wants to be a leader. And some people don't recognize that Shell, the size, again, these may be outdated numbers, but My research points to 44,000 retail stations in 70 countries serving 30 million customers. So from a single brand, that's uh, bigger than Starbucks or McDonald's. Uh, Just to put it it in context. So you have upstream innovation in terms of serviceability and you have downstream in terms of delighting stakeholders, personalized delivery, the the citizen development movement. Uh, I know that there's 10,000 Salesforce users using mobile applications within the Shell ecosystem. So there's this incredible upstream, downstream. Give advice to folks uh, who are trying to do what you did seven years ago. How do you, in a big company, nearly 100,000 employees, create a center of excellence where you could have 100 plus AI projects in the pipeline and you get buy-in and sponsorships and executive stakeholders who allow you to move like a startup. How do you do that in a big company? Yeah.
3: it's a great question. And I think um, I was very lucky. Let me start there. I mean, you know, some of the scale of shell, you you put it out there. I mean, um, you know, just to update the numbers, so you you get the idea. I mean, we've got about one point three trillion rows of data that we've ingested into the platform that you talked about for predictive maintenance. and and we're actively monitoring now about um, two thousand three hundred pieces of equipment in production every day. Uh, using a multiple of machine learning models that you talked about, so it gives you an idea of of, of that sort of scale. And and as I said, those forty eight applications that are going into production this year, one hundred and sixty odd in development, you know, you get you get an idea of, of of what we're doing. And I think the challenge, right, is is we didn't start there, right? This is six years into the journey,
4: hmm.
3: and and you know. I remember one of my senior leaders who's been a great mentor of mine sat me down at the start of this and she said dan don't be impatient it takes five years to build the capability uh you've got to be in this for the long haul and i think she was absolutely right and I'm, i think that's probably true for any startup it was certainly true for us sure. um and, and i think that you know what served us well was we really from the outset had a had a crystal focus on saying we're going to not go after 45 things we're going to go after three things then five things then seven things and eventually of course you scale out that that funnel but you build off of being successful in a small number of things and i think the point was though that those things didn't become the end in themselves so at no point did we ever say this is it you know these these are the things we're going to do and that's it what we always felt was that these were examples of what was possible that built momentum for us to do the other things that we needed to do very
4: cool
3: so we kind of yeah. have these three pillars when we started the coe we start we, we first of all had the showcase so showcase that it's possible we've got to walk the talk we've got to demonstrate that it works we then have the network which is and we need to do the change piece we need to build the viral movement we need to get people on board We need to educate our executives we need to build the momentum behind it and then the final thing was we need to build stuff that's reusable. Hmm. Because the challenge is that to build once is very expensive. Sure. You can start to repeat, sure. you can actually get the, the flywheel effect kicking in. Sure. And I think you know, we, that's been the big learning for us of how can you create some of the common standards, build things consistently, create things that are reusable and get some of the ancillary benefits from that.
2: Yeah.
3: And the final thing I think is about empowerment. I mean, the big thing that we learned is don't try and do it yourself. And that might sound like a crazy thing, but <laughs> the, the big thing that a lot of COEs I find fall down on is that they tend to think that to show we're valuable, we need to do all the work. Yeah. And actually, the opposite, the opposite is true. To, to show you're valuable, you need to bring together the capability to execute and deliver the outcomes. Yeah. And, and that typically means dropping boundaries internal and external and bringing together groups of people that can that the, the the sum of the parts is greater than any individual member of the team and yeah. what we've learned to do over the last few years is to build these coherent teams which together can achieve phenomenal things um, and some of the most exciting projects that we've seen have come out of those groups of people where we've brought fantastic capabilities together um, and really unusual combinations of people um, yeah.
4: And I so, think that's been amazing. Yeah. So, so the takeaway yeah. is that the spark can come from the COE, but the flame, the heat, the energy has to come from the community and all of right. Shell, all of the stakeholders. That, that's <laughs> excellent, excellent advice. That's excellent advice.
0: Go ahead, Dave. Actually, related to that, you've also been doing some development. There's a Shell.ai residency program, if I remember. Right. Uh, talk a little bit about that because you're recruiting the next generation as well through that. Yeah.
3: Well, look, I mean, I think you know anyone in the AI field will tell you that that you, you sort of you go away for a week on holiday and five things happened and you're out of date, right? And, and I think <laughs> I'm sure you guys feel that. I know Ray, you know, you try to keep up with date with all of this technology. You must feel that it's just going so fast, and I feel you continually need to recognise that actually. The cutting edge of this stuff is often happening uh, you know, in some of the universities uh, in some you know, unique parts of industry. And actually, we've got to bring that in because we need to learn from that. And I think this is the thing I've I've felt is you've got to be so humble in this space. You've got to always be learning um, and always be willing to have somebody challenge your conventional way of thinking. And so we wanted to bring in that challenge to our conventional ways of thinking because we've grown a lot from within. And that's been great and we've built a lot of talent and, and we've developed a lot of people but actually now seeding in some of that really innovative next generation talent is bringing some fantastic perspectives from outside shell and, and as i mentioned it's that diversity that creates such strength and i think that's yeah. for me that's where i get excited right and, and um yeah so that's the, the thinking behind the residency program and we just launched it in bangalore that's the fourth launch um yep, yep. and so uh, it,
4: it's going quickly and it's going global that's awesome that that that's you know uh, commit, india's commitment to ai and innovative technologies is is second to none They're definitely uh, they're definitely on the forefront and trying to build and grow that talent there so you know when you i'm curious in terms of the the flow of ideas that come in and out of the coe like when you're implementing for example machine vision technologies on the retail downstream and you're using combination of sensors and ml and and other technologies for Upstream. Where do these ideas come from? Uh, you know, if you want to optimize inventory in a warehouse versus delight customers who are visiting your 44,000 uh, shell-branded stations, uh, you know, um, how much re- re- reusability of technology? And, and who, you know, who is, uh, is, is it the 160-some-odd folks in the COE? Or, you know, where, where do you find these incredible, exciting projects to work, work on? And how do you prioritize them?
3: That's a great question. Well, so I mean, we've been very fortunate, right? So, so back in 2017, um, I didn't quite complete the story. In 2017, things kind of went up a notch for us because suddenly, digital became mainstream, and and True. our executive committee really got excited about it. And and I think that was the point, the inflection point at which things changed, and we went from yeah. sort of, you know, tens of people towards hundreds of people working in this space. Okay. Um, I, I think, though, the thing about that was what they also did, which I think was brilliant, was it was a fantastic piece of strategy work because what they, ain't, what they didn't try and do was tell us what to do. <laughs> what they tried to do was give us a bunch of guide rails to say this is what you should be focused on.
4: That's awesome. That's and awesome. One of
3: the key, a couple of the key principles that they put in place, which I think have served us really well, is customer or user is central, mm-hmm. and, and, but also business owns digital. So the, the key point of those two things is you need to understand what the end user needs, and focus on solving that problem at the lowest cost possible, but then figuring out whether that translates into a material business outcome that scales and is aligned to the business strategy. And and if you want me to put what we're trying to do in a nutshell, that's it. And getting good at that end-to-end is not
4: easy. It sounds very simple. It's so hard. Yeah, But, but it's a light process. I mean, you know, a river without boundaries is a puddle. So they gave you some boundaries but yeah. they, didn't, they didn't impede your flow of creativity and innovation. That's awesome. Well, I, I've been so
3: lucky. And I think that there was also a
4: recognition that um, to thrive through energy
3: transition, which is ultimately our focus. So we right. have to transform our business. Sure. We're in the midst of a huge transition in the energy system. Sure. And nobody knows what that's, that's going to look like. Because let's be really honest, changing the energy system is really, really hard. Right. I, I wish it was easy. And I wish that I could click my fingers and it would change. But it, it's going to be really hard work. And, and there are sectors in our economies that are really hard to decarbonize. It's, it's not simple stuff. The science is, is tricky. And scaling is even harder. And so the challenge, I think this is what they recognize. Digital is key to that. But they needed to sort of create the environment in which the problems were clear, but actually unleash the creativity within the organization to allow us to solve those problems. And I think what's come out of that is some really good aligned business projects that drive material impact. Um, and I think that's really cool.
4: You're on an amazing yeah, journey. Awesome. And when you're done, you're going to look like me uh, because <laughs> you're right. You're right. It is, it is challenging, but I can tell you're having fun. It seems like you love what you do and you have the freedom to as Steve Jobs said, put a dent in the universe. So thank you for sharing that amazing, your, your story with us. Dan, thank
0: you so much. We're, we're here with Dan Jevons, General Manager at Shell, and you can follow him on the company handle at S-H-E-L-L or check out the shell.ai site if you wanna learn a little bit more. So thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for being on the show. So- thank you, Dan. <laughs> We're about to go to our next guest. And uh, yeah, well, this is episode number 207. I can't believe it's 207, sponsored by Robots and Pencils. So, who do we have next? Yeah, we're close to
4: 650 guest interviews, by the way. Uh, It's our privilege. Uh, Our next guest is Asha Arvandakshin, Vice President of Customer Delight. What a great title. And operations at Sprinkler. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. I want to be responsible for that. I think we all should be. Asha uh, uh, is, uh, again, Vice President of customer Delight uh, at Sprinkler, where she works with other senior executives on cross-functional initiatives to achieve corporate values of employee happiness. You can't have happy customers without happy employees. Customer happiness and growth. All of this goes hand in hand. Previously, Asha streamlined business operations to maximize accountability, growth and strategic alignment for public and private stakeholders. Asha brings entrepreneurship agility with unwavering commitment to amplify impact. She serves uh, on the board of directors for MIT Sloan Club of New York and as a venture partner for Verb Ventures. Uh, Asha presents at conferences uh, across all of America and is a recipient of awards and digital transformation uh, and future of work. You can follow her. She's a great follow on Twitter at DCASHA. Welcome Asha to Disrupt TV.
2: Thank you, Vala. Thank you, Ray. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you. so awesome having you here. Your Business Transformation 150 winner. So congratulations. Uh, Thanks for being on the show. Um, and you've been doing digital transformation for quite some time. And I, that's partly why we wanted to spend some time with you today is to talk about digital transformation. Um, you guys are using a very interesting value realization model. Talk a little bit about that. And I also wanna know a little bit about, you know, how that digital transformation model is, is used, um, not just with you guys, but across other organizations.
2: Sure, I'd love to, first let's start and tell you what Sprinkler is. So Sprinkler is a unified front office platform We are creating a category with modern customer experience management. We help enterprises with marketing, advertising, research, care and engagement across 35 social and messaging channels. This is all around the world. And so we love working with enterprise customers um, ranging from McDonald's to Samsung, Allstate um, in various different sectors. And it's fun learning from them as well and how they use our product in different ways and different use cases. Um, the value realization model was actually something that was born about 18 months ago a group of cross-functional leaders came together every day 7:30 in the morning um, to talk about how we were going to create this and roll this out and really it was the alignment of our pre-sales and post-sales initiatives ranging from how you position value to the customer and this could be done through your initial primary secondary research before going into a sales meeting discover value which is when you actually talk to the customer, understand their pain points, you show a demonstration of the software, you understand what, what they're using right now and where they're trying to go. You know That move from digital to customer experience is a big shift for some companies and we're right there to help them. And then on the post-sales side, we're making sure that we're implementing value by you know listening to what they said in the pre-sales process and making sure the software is configured to meet those use cases, which is super important because a lot of times... Customers say something in the sales process and it doesn't always appear at the the other side, right? And we're here, we have our check and balances internally to make sure that we are implementing exactly what they've asked for in the way they've asked for it. And then finally in the realized value phase that they can see that value through a dashboard that's available right in the platform. And that dashboard is showing them ROI of their investment with us and the ROI of the actions they're taking in the platform. And it's amazing, just I've seen so many of these dashboards now, you know, throughout the year, and the reactions from our customers, especially through COVID-19 has been so, you know, for them, they're seeing the value and they're seeing like why Sprinklr is able to help them through this, you know, very trying time.
0: Yeah. So in general, like taking yourself out of the context of Sprinkler mm-hmm. when you think about digital transformation, right, are we seeing more engagement? Are we seeing people jump in with more projects that are being successful? Or are we still in experimental stage or experimentation?
2: So, we are, this is like out of, this is totally in like active mode. All our teams are using this with their customers. And it's it's beautiful seeing them be able to go into conversations where, you know, everyone's at home right now. It's really easy to get an executive on the line, a lot easier than it was a year ago, right? And so, when you have that captive audience and you're able to say, I'm not just here to, you know, talk about your service, I'm here to show you the value that you're receiving from it. The executives are listening and they want to find out how they can use more of the service. Uh, they have, you know, they may have different use cases that have come up, given that everyone's home and working from home and their customers are home, right? And they want ideas and best practices to help them through this, especially going into the holiday season, right? Retailers are looking for different avenues to engage with customers. You know, you know e-commerce is huge right now. And so we're just we're seeing a changing landscape, right? You, you see this every week on your show with your different um, subjects, right? And so we're able to advise and help these customers because we're seeing it across A thousand different customers, how they're reacting to this data.
4: Yeah, we had uh, the lead practice uh, at McKinsey a couple of weeks ago talk to us about 10 years of e commerce adoption in the past three months. Wow. Uh, You know, where the US uh, percentage of commerce digital grew from 16 to 33% from December of 2019 to present day. So a doubling effect uh, since the beginning of the year. and so, speed to value is how companies, uh, you know, demonstrate relevance and sustained yes. relevance leads to trust. So, in terms of the position, discover, implement, and realize value phases, did you have to tweak any of the model given this, uh, you know, seismic event that we've all experienced since February, or it just further reinforced the importance of uh, unless you can demonstrate value realization you're not gonna earn the future business of, of your clients.
2: It was more the latter. And I'll give a really good example where one a regional airline in Europe, they had 300,000 customer care tickets last year for the full year. They had 300,000 in the first three months of COVID. <laughs> okay. And they didn't have to change anything wow. because the workflows, the AI that had already been trained, right, to mm. handle that volume. The workflows were there to assign it to the agents. The only difference was their their agents, only they had to worry about was moving from the office to working right. at home, right? The tool was there, their tickets are coming in the same way and they could handle the volume without issue. And they didn't lose anything on customer service during that time. And it's so important that we were able to help them do that. And that was because they were they had gone through the whole value realization framework and they were at that realized value stage. And, and sprinkler was configured for them in the way they needed, it. and most importantly, the AI was tuned to the way they needed it.
4: And, and can, can you expand on that? Because the the two parts of the equation is happy customers and happy employees. Yes. Uh, you know, the fact that you had to not like a dimmer, but light switch, move all of you know sprinkler employees to work remotely. What was that process like? And how did you and the leadership team uh, recognize the importance of empathy and flexibility, and recognizing that? You know, there may be some employees that don't have broad- broadband access or they're, you know, sharing an apartment with a roommate because they're, right. you know, just graduated from college. And we all, you know, we've all experienced the pandemic, but none of us have experienced it the same way. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to ensure that happy employee equation as well.
2: Absolutely. And so six and a half months ago when we were having these conversations, it was twice a day about what to wow. do wow. and, uh, you know, made that decision finally to close the offices for employee safety globally. So it wasn't just one or two, it was all 15 offices were going to be closed on the same day. It was for, you know, and telling the employees this is the best thing for you right now given the information that we have and what's coming out from the governments and all these respective countries. And so we're we're a 100% SaaS company, like our infrastructure is entirely SaaS. So it was seamless for the employee to to take all their work on their laptop which they were already using and yeah. go home, right? they, where they struggled was in that adjustment to being home, whether it's their, you know, with their extended family, they don't have the best internet, they may not even have a table to work on. (laughs) Right? we heard stories about that. And so there was a series of listening forums that were done also to make sure that the executives understood the challenges the employees were facing. It was a very empathetic situation. And uh, both our CEO and our culture and talent team, they really stepped up as far as rolling out I'm going to call them perks, but it, you know, really was like mental health button benefits, you know, like headspace access to audible LinkedIn learning, right? We saw LinkedIn learning used to jump 60% in the first month people were at home Wow! Oh, and yeah. you know, people, were, they, they want to be connected. They want to feel part of a community and that community is going to be virtual. They needed avenues to find it. Right. Yeah. And so we were able to provide them with that. We're doing meditation three times a day. There's a personal yeah. trainer at lunch, right? These are all optional but they're available, right? So the employee, if they need that break and they need, it's on their calendar and they can just step in to that Google Meet and, and join that event and they don't ever feel isolated. Because that I think is like the hardest thing, right? Yeah. In, in during this time period because we're not seeing each other, we're not having those office run-ins, you know, at the water station or, yeah. or the coffee pot. It's,
0: it's tough, true, man. True. We, we don't have those moments of serendipity, right? You bump right. Into We need meditation for the truck TV we need meditation all right let's do it now let's not do it right here (laughs) no but but those are important points right and 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 the nature of work's changing the work environment's changing as well um and and people are trying to adjust Uh, so actually one one of the interesting things that you spend a lot of time talking about as well and you've been pretty vocal about is equal pay so let's talk about that you've been featured and hired for that and really talking about what's going on there um how does that change now? I mean, when we think about, you know, is it, is it more prevalent? Is it less prevalent? Where does it sit in issues in terms of uh, where people are talking about this?
2: I think there's definitely more transparency around it, right? It's not part of the conversation. Uh, Just the statistics that are out there about equal pay between men and women, um, even with different ethnic groups and races. And so I think people are just more informed and I'm hoping that people are having these conversations as they're negotiating, you know, new, new jobs and, and merit increases and all these things, like and asking for the data, like, are, am I making the right, you know, as the equivalent of my peers, right? And there's tons of information out there that's publicly available for Glassdoor, LinkedIn, PayScale, where people can do the research. And that wasn't the case, you know, even five years ago, it was hard to find this information as an individual, as an employee, and now there's just more and more information. I worked in public sector. I'm used to having my salary published in the Washington Post. Right? So for me, it was very different, you know. Here's you
0: know, your pay grade. Here's your name.
2: Everything, right? Everybody, Everybody
0: knew, there. right there. Everybody so.
2: knew. And, you know, there's there's no hiding from it. And so here, you know, in the private sector, you're just realizing that it's, just, it's not the same. People don't know that this information should be transparent. So I have, you know, a very unique perspective of it because I'm used to the transparency. But I'm hoping that other people are learning that they can ask for the information. Um, they, sh- they should be leveraging these publicly available data sources to benchmark themselves. Right and be informed because it's important. I,
4: I saw you uh, in a documentary where again you talked about uh, where there was an opportunity for you to have two skip level uh, promotion, uh, and the employer at the time, you know, was maybe perhaps a little bit hesitant in terms of promoting you two levels and paying you for that, you know, upper level. And you mentioned the importance of having a sponsor. You know, we often hear about in in our careers. You know, it's important to have a mentor, someone that teaches you how to think, not what to think, and guides you in terms of developing critical thinking skills and so on and so forth, like a coach, career coach. But a sponsor in my career has been more impactful than a mentor. Somebody that put their political, social capital on the line. They were above me in the, you know, the career ladder. uh, And they extended their hand and they pulled me up. And I can think of several instances where I had major uh, step function shifts in my career because of a sponsor. Can you talk and give some advice to other executives like yourself in terms of the importance of being a sponsor and paying it forward?
2: Yeah, I love that you distinguish a sponsor versus a mentor, right? Mm-hmm. That like taking that um, the chance on the political capital because you have a vested interest in someone's personal growth and development is huge. And mm-hmm. not a lot of people will do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that to distinguish yourself as a leader, as someone who really cares about people, we talked about empathy. Earlier on, you have to be able to put yourself out there and help the others that are coming up behind you, right? Because that's the only way that they're going to be able to learn and to grow and to get the opportunities, right? As they come up. And you've got someone's got to clear the path, and you can be that person to do that.
4: I agree. I, I have the good fortune of mentoring uh, a good number of folks at my company. And I always, one of my first early questions is, Who's your sponsor? And if they don't have one, my mentoring is all directed towards. earn earn a sponsor. It's it's not like you can knock on an executive's door and say, hey, help me out. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. But there are certain things you can do to earn a sponsor. And that I think is the most important. Uh, I actually think it's rewarding for the sponsor as well. I mean, it's it's super important to see someone rise through an organization because you value their rate of learning and their good judgment. So you're comfortable with, you know, giving opening doors for them. Uh, So anyway, I thought that, that advice you gave on that uh, you know, short documentary that I saw was, was brilliant. I, Thank I
2: appreciate you, it. So it you, I think you were really good points. Like just watching someone's trajectory and knowing that you played a small role in it is the most rewarding part of a career.
4: Totally, so I don't remember how much money I made throughout my career in the last 20 some odd years, but I remember every single person that opened a door for me, every single person. And so I have elephant memory for door openers and I don't have good memory about anything else. <laughs> so, so if you want to be remembered as an executive or a business leader, be a sponsor. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ray, Go ahead. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's definitely true. And I think these are important topics, right? I mean, people are back. You know, people are working from home. They've got more time to think about, you know, their careers, what they want to do, what they might want to do next. Um, and and this is definitely the time to to reevaluate, you know, your career and how, where you want to go. I mean. And, and a lot of people don't often have the chance, you know, that luxury to, to take that time to think about it. So so for those folks that are out there, you just want to make sure that, you know, you, you're being paid accordingly. You're paid fairly uh, on the way up. So I think that was pretty powerful. So I think everyone should check it out. It's it's on Hired, actually. I can't remember, right? That's where you can find that documentary. So I think that's pretty good. So, um, but I also want to talk to you about another issue, which is actually kind of fun. Uh, okay. Really thinking about where you see the future of work, right? And where do you see... What, what people are doing, right? I mean, you see what's happening in your companies, you see what's happening with other clients, um, but have we fundamentally changed? Do you think we're gonna go back to what we were doing before, like maybe like a year from now or two years from now when people feel things are more normal or more like what it was used to be?
2: I think they're gonna be a large portion of people that will because they love the routine, they love the interactions. Um, There's something, you know, just even just having that commuting time to yourself to think, Right. That we're missing in our normal oh my day. God, before.
0: I miss that. I miss I missed the right. plane time. I actually miss Plan the back. airport, yeah. I miss the the yeah, airport. When, when yeah. you're first class
4: everywhere, right. you know, yeah. he has Mercedes Benz limos picking him up on the tarmac, you know, with his super platinum cards. But, <laughs> yeah. No, no, but but I'm travel. Most of us don't travel like Ray. Just let the audience
0: know. No, but I'm also the guy that's sitting on the floor or on the, you know, on the terminal, you know, right next right. to like the, the wall yeah. with the charger plugged in there, you know, <laughs> trying to hawk Wi Fi from like the like the airline club because I can't get in. I mean I mean you know, but but it's time to yourself, right? Yeah. I mean I, I, I you know, there's that there's that routine. I mean, do you miss that routine or
2: I don't miss, you know, waking up and taking the train for an hour into New York City, right? I do enjoy my three-minute commute now, but I do miss you – know, I, I used to, you know, listen to my um – audible during that time. And I used to like you know read exactly. books and, things and listen to books. And so I'm missing that. Right. And that, that experience, that time to myself. And so I think there are people who will want to go back to exactly the way things were, you know, back in January, for example. Um, and then there are people who are going to say, no, I'm, I'm going to spend a little more time at home. I'm going to leave early to go to the kids soccer game. Um, you know, and, there, and then you're going to see more flexibility. And I hope that, you know, when we go back to that and people do choose, you know, to take more time for themselves that, We as a culture respect that because that's the hardest thing like the people weren't doing that before because they felt they had to be button feet in the office right eight hours a day four five days a week and that they couldn't do those things but now we're seeing the work is getting done yeah right the work is getting done it's people are more productive right and hopefully that continues Or burning
0: out or burning out so So, well you know
4: (laughs) andrew yang and i are promoting four day work week so that's uh I keep I keep sharing <laughs> case studies from Finland and Sweden and Denmark and all these places that are doing four-day work week and they're crushing it. Employees are happy, healthy. So I'm, I'm promoting a three-day weekend. But anyway, that's a different show topic. <laughs> uh, any other prediction? Any, any other <laughs> prediction? You know, one prediction, short one, I think in this hyper-connected digital economy that's now distributed in nature and decentralized, I think the value of a traditional resume is going away. I think that the web is your resume, social networks are your mass references. So when I, my son's 10, by the time he's graduating college, hopefully knock on wood, looking for, I don't think anyone's gonna be looking at a, an updated LinkedIn profile or a couple of pages of a written profile. There, there'll be enough not, intelligent applications to know competence and character and cultural fit just
0: based on his digital
4: footprint. Exactly.
0: Anyway, so that, uh, or, or just be just on Disrupt yeah, TV. They'll run it, the video. They'll run the video from Disrupt TV and say, oh, yeah, no, don't hire this person. <laughs> yeah, <right.
2: laughs> but, you know, it's the funny thing is, you know, how, how old is the resume, right? And it still stands the test of time. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. But, someone tries to do something different, put a picture, add some color. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: And, but it's the same process that your grandfather, your father, yeah. and yourself uh, used. Right. and. Then you get Gallup polls. You're face-
0: avatars on my resume. What about you? <laughs> no
4: Seventy-five <else>, percent <laughs> of American workers are disengaged. The whole like, you know, the 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 the, the whole thing needs uh, to be disrupted. Mass, and I think it is. I think you know, j- j- just uh, for the record, uh, I, I, when I was hired at Salesforce, I didn't have a resume, uh, and uh, wow. I had. Zero interest of
0: creating He's one. Su- he was such a loyal employee that he never bothered <laughs> to put a resume. He worked at the same place for like oh, it,
4: it, it was more naivete. But bottom line is I didn't have one. Um, I, I have a story about that, but it's boring. But in any of it, digital native companies like Sprinkler, Salesforce, right. others, you know, yeah, when know they it. find talent, they're not using traditional methods to recruit. So believe you me. Uh, Anyway, that's my one one cent predi- no. uh, 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 topic on
2: predictions. Come back, next well, How
0: it is. come back next year. <laughs> and we'll talk more about what happened. No, I was kidding. Uh, we are here with Asha. I can never get your name right. Arvind, Ah, Is that correct? So, Arvindakshan Ray. <laughs> I, I think I got it right. I should have come
2: closer.
0: Got right. You got it You got it right. Vice President, Customer delight and operations at Sprinkler. I and I know her at DC. Asha. So um, follow her on there and follow um sprinkler and catch up of what's happening next. And of course, definitely check out her video on Hired. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks a lot for being here on Friday. Thank
4: you, so, Thank you, Ashley, you're great. You're terrific. All right, wow. Yeah, my, this is why Friday is my favorite time of the week because my mind fast. is just like spinning like you wouldn't believe it. it's gonna spin even faster. Our, our, this is our cleanup hitter squad where we bring someone in who it's a grand slam and just brings it all home. And so it's our privilege to have Cheryl Sullivan uh, who's currently the president of DemandTech, a strategic business within Acoustic, uh, where she leads DemandTech's business that consists of customer base of over 700 global retail and CPG companies. Cheryl's a proven retail and CPG innovation executives with 30 years of experience. She started when she was four, uh, <laughs> leading teams to deliver high impact products. Uh, that meet the needs of retailers worldwide. Cheryl has spearheaded industry innovation that drive measurable business impact and profitability, profitability for many large retail and CPG organizations globally. Before joining Demandtech, Cheryl helped steer the corporate strategy, lead marketing, account development, product strategy and roadmap for Revionics. Cheryl is well-recognized as a retail and pricing thought leader who is widely coded in industry and business publication and presents at industry events worldwide. Another great follow on Twitter at number one, at one, Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L, S-U-L-L-I-V-A. Welcome, Cheryl, to the Disrupt TV.
1: Thank you for having me back. It's great to be here again
4: thank you
0: so much hey no thanks for being here and you know we're talking about a really hot topic and when we think about what's going on as the holiday season is coming up believe it or not and it is crazy this is going to be a really bizarre season unlike any other um talk about how this is going to be different what are retailers planning for and more importantly what can they do so let's start there yeah
1: yeah COVID oh. is really uh put uh, retail and the tell spin. So there's good news and there's bad news. So the good news is that according to Bloomberg, that the consumer spend is expected to grow one to five percent. But at the same time, they're they're claiming you know one in five businesses depend on these holiday sales for their survival. And the challenge for retailers is they're going to have to now plan against a shopper that is unrecognizable. So, so who they were pre-COVID is not who they are now, and it's not even gonna be who they are when the pandemic is over. So, so this has changed forever. So what does that do? That brings um, really three major areas in place. So one is online growth. So mm-hmm. COVID is, I always say, take, take, take the training wheels off of many people who were you know, teetering in online, but not really uh, making it a major channel. Um, So that is one big thing. We did a we did a collaborative collaboration with Progressive Grocer on a uh, shopper study, a global one that just recently came out. And what we learned was 35 percent of shoppers stated they've now made online their primary channel. So and they expect this to keep going. And to put that in perspective, it was at seven percent. So so major major growth there.
0: Are are shopping malls dead? Is like retail shopping dead? I heard this earlier today on a TV show that retail is dead in New York City. Nothing's coming back. I mean, is it
1: that extreme? (laughs) So you've got to look at who the retailers are because, um, you know, really grocery, I've heard the term was given a a lottery ticket. So unlike fashion and more areas where there's more discretionary spend, um, it's propelled grocery. Like, you know, most retailers are seeing, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30%. Our customers are seeing incredible um, increases in their sales. Um, and, but coming into the holiday season, because of this online surge, you know, uh, Bloomberg stating that they're going to see a 35% growth um, mm-hmm. in, in, in sales this holiday season. The Problem is, is it's great that sh- that shoppers are willing to spend, but how? What are retailers going to do? That's the real question. And one of the things that COVID has really impacted is the level of price transparency and sensitivity that shoppers had. You know, where they didn't used to have it. And when we asked these shoppers globally, and I will tell you, the worst vertical of all that this has impacted has been grocery. So online grocery, big wow. ship. 61% said that their price sensitivity levels are greater compared to other verticals, um, which was really hovered between 41 and 46%. But what's kind of scary is they also say that's going to increase even when the pandemic's over. So that number jumped to 66%. So retailers have to get their arms around what they're price sensitive in. And I've seen the third thing that's really put things in a health span is what I call shopper price perception. So, in the study, seventy-six percent of shoppers said they were they experienced unfair pricing, price gouging, arbitrary pricing. Like they're not happy with their with the retailers today. So, one would say, well, that's pretty high. Did really everybody do that? But rather, whether it's true or not, shoppers thinks it's true, and I don't believe oh, that. That's
0: we, all that matters.
1: Yes, And I don't think retailers purposely did this. Um, it's pretty apparent to us. And what we can see is, you know, retailers bank on what they call key value items. And these are the items is a, a set of items in the, you know, in the retailers assortment that truly drive this disport, disproportionate amount of price perception. And what's happened with COVID is, you know, KVIs typically stay pretty stagnant, and retailers would do these one off analytical projects, you know, every six months or so to recheck, you know, are they still in line? They've shifted all over the place. Yeast, believe it or not, for one of our customers has become a KVI item. <laughs> like who would have thought yeast would be, you know, one of those items that are gonna drive the perception? So the, these are really big areas, and unless retailers are getting their arms around ai because i'm telling you you're not it's just we're in a new world here and you know demand tech was the pioneer in bringing that so so the one good news about us is we we were the first to bring this to market and the first to bring it to market in retail so in our you know our science has obviously matured and grown and what's been good is you know our our retailers have done quite well um but they are gonna to need to like get going on some of, some of this capability if they're going to, they can't bank on historical data anymore. They can't bank on what they did last year.
4: Which is a super challenge. Uh, Rand, I again interviewed uh, a, a thought leader in this space and I wrote a ZDNet article that stated 75% of Americans have switched brands uh, during the pandemic. Mm. And uh, the predominant reason for switching brand was availability. Good luck trying to get a refrigerator nowadays, or try buying a couch or furniture. Oh my God, my everything mom tried is those months. Of... <laughs> uh, it's three months, months out. It's three three months months out. out. Literally. So, supply chain disruption is, is, is a significant uh, uh, result of the pandemic. And when I think of pre-pandemic, you mentioned discretionary spend, so essential spend, uh, non-essential you really had relevance as a filter for non-essential. If you're a runner, you bought sneakers every 300 miles of running because you know, it, it was good habit and it was relevant to your, your, your health habits. Since the pandemic, safety and accessibility are additional filters. I can't go to a Celtics game 15 minutes from my home because you know, the, the, there's no access to the arena. Yeah. uh so 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 given the fact that you have now safety and i believe now it's a brand pillar for companies uh, you know you will not buy from a brand that doesn't appreciate the safety of its stakeholders mm-hmm. how do these retailers stock up for inventory like how do they do it yeah. so
1: so, a couple of things is it's interesting that you talk about the safety and 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 we actually ask a lot of these questions even around cleanliness and we try to drill into like is that the number one driver now for who you're going to shop with? And what was surprising is price still ranked number one, like price over three. safety. See, mm-hmm. yes, over cleanliness. And yes, over
4: safety. Right. right the, the economic condition, I mean, again, that K economic, you know, those of us who are fortunate working still, and you know, but more yeah. of us are without jobs and and we haven't had relief and yeah so i i I can appreciate price and what's
1: interesting is what followed which is always consistently followed for years now is quality
4: so they want price
1: they want quality and to your point about them shopping brands certain brands we also kind of tested the water around that um around brands around private label and what many of the shoppers are claiming is they are only going to shop brands they trust. Like there's this heavy shift. to I'm going to shop brand, brands I trust. What goes hand in hand with that is on the private label front. So many shoppers, you know, were enticed to buy private label and what they found out is private label is actually, you know, good quality. Mm-hmm. And so they said there right now there was a 7% growth in shoppers buying private labels. So if you put those two together, you know, I, I'm gonna shop brands I trust cause you know added to the gouging and all these things like like mm-hmm. trust is, you know, really deteriorated here. So it also means that retailers have got to get their strategies around private label and how they are balancing that with national brands. Um, so that will be a big deal, especially for retailers. You know, the uh, if you take an Aldi or a little or somebody like that, you know their their, their predominant assortment is private label products yeah. and they they're known for you know really good pricing so um that's something they're going to have to get their arms around sure
4: but ray yeah. just going back to our malls dead if i walked into a mall and the store didn't have a prominent sign that said mask are required social distancing is required they don't have contactless payment the combination of those things they're not going to earn my business i mean right away if mask is not required i'm not walking in just my personal point of view so so to me you better demonstrate in fact that happened to my favorite restaurant I saw a couple of the wait staff wearing a mask under their nose I walked out and it's my favorite restaurant I'm talking once a week dining and uh so you you need to show me like you're taking this seriously because you know it's so again my own personal view I suspect more and more safety is going to rise to the very near top especially If there's a second wave or we find flu season to be, you know, more devastating than the the past. So anyway. uh,
1: It's definitely, it's definitely at the top. But but back to even your initial question on inventory, especially for these like fashion and those types of retailers, like that's always their challenge, right? Like Mm -hmm. how do I like, you know, price, and really it comes down to how you're pricing it and are you balancing against your inventory? But in reality, it's about how you're reacting to the unexpected. Right. So yeah. when the, when they leave when the door opens and out, it all goes, they have a plan in place. And but you know if they're not really using some form of technology with science embedded in it that can actually monitor those inventory levels, know where that inventory is across those, and be dynamically recreating a markdown plan. Like you may think it's you know this price and this price along this timeline, but in reality. Maybe it's not. And so I think what's going to happen, and they've struggled with this, this is not a new problem. Yeah. I think This is going to be a highly difficult problem because where it might have been a few tweaks they have to do, I don't think they know what to expect. So they are not going to get their assortment right. They are not going to get their inventory right. And you know they're going to be at risk at not clearing that merchandise as probably as they can. <laughs>
4: Sorry, just quick. Cheryl, I watched the Battery Day with Elon Musk uh, this week, and he talked about the power of decentralization in terms of having factories in multiple continents. And he said, there's no way we can scale to production of half a million plus cars unless we had a distributed factory uh, model. I'm wondering, are retailers thinking about distribution in terms of where the products are produced? In a more in a less centralized and more decentralized so that they can be more resilient to things like a pandemic.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know they, they have their distribution centers and a lot of them are looking at where else they can put distribution centers. I think their bigger problem is is this buy online, pick up in store. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, they're still not very prepared for that, right? They're yeah. they're trying to source it. I think you know with COVID and especially this next wave that we're all bracing for, that's just gonna get worse.
2: Right.
1: That's where they're struggling. You know, they get the suppliers to get all the inventory in there, but that's why, you know, unless they know where all that inventory is and they're constantly allocating that inventory right. to the right places and shifting between stores and stuff like that. And then that doesn't matter if you're not pricing it properly. Right. And you know, dealing with a highly price sensitive shopper. Right. I would say for the holidays the bigger problem is, you know, it's a very promotionally centric yeah. and, you know, what promotions are you going to run? And one of the things that we saw was kind of shocked us was we asked, um, you know, what type of promotions, you know, it appeals to you. Part of it's shocking, part of it's not. Um, what's never ranked first has been bogus. It's always been like no. it's always been like percent off. And now it's bogos. It's like, I want one. I want one free. I'm not going to buy two to get one free. I'm not going to buy one and get 50. I like guess what I want a go. So it's getting that quantity at this cheap yeah. price. And then what followed that was, was a, a dollar off. So percent off, which typically led the pack. I mean, there's a million different promotional types, sure. but retailers don't get that. Like, like, it's not just, it's like, it's not just that I'm giving you a discount. It's like, what's the offer? Yeah. And where are you reaching me with that offer you know
2: Anywhere
1: so excuses. yeah yeah,
0: yeah. that's to, a very interesting shift too and, and and one of the things you said earlier was really that you know because of you know the buying patterns have changed a lot of people's models haven't changed to accommodate that so what do you do if like you know you're you're running the same offer you ran last year for the holiday season are you going to fail or do you have to do something different like do yeah. you know how to adjust
1: yeah. So, so uh, yeah. So this is where the pandemic has really um, showed a lot of things, right? So it showed that fixed models, or at least certain components of models, become obsolete very quickly. So, like we've stated several times at Demand Tech, that there's no one size fits all when it comes to demand modeling science. That by definition, the model is just that: it's a mathematical representation of behavior and the underlying uh, relationships that's driving that behavior. So if the behavior is changing significantly, which we're obviously seeing in, in COVID, it's certainly possible that the model used to predict that behavior needs to adjust. So these, which is really the heart of machine learning. Um, so so it, it's not like you create it, set it, leave it, and it's all gonna work fine. It's like, it's got to constantly be tweaked. And, um, you know, and that's why, that's why some people think they can build these models and then, in-house and then walk away. In reality, we have a team scientist that that's their job all day long.
0: You know, how do
1: I improve this?
0: It's a living model, right? I mean, it's a living model. Right? I mean, model. self yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there are new techniques and new, new data sources, right? There's a lot of new things that are available now to inform the model. And I think retail, which was so slow, <laughs> you know, to adopt AI or even to go more dynamic is, you know, Fast tracking, like like they want everything dynamic. Um, even we have, oh, no, we no, have customers no. doing dynamic pricing in, in the brick and mortar store.
0: You know, yeah. you and I were on a panel at NRF, and I think we had bumped into, I think Vala, we actually might have even bumped into you at that point in time <laughs> uh, talking about this. Um, a lot has changed, right? And one of the things that we keep hearing a lot from, from our clients and other people is decision velocity, right? Machines can make decisions 100 times per second. Humans are lucky to make it one per second, and it's yeah. going to take them about a week to get it out of the boardrooms. Yeah. i mean <laughs> it's asymmetric warfare i mean we're, we're, we're gonna yeah. get crushed without this right so i mean pricing models are moving that fast and supply chains back to vala's point like i mean how am i gonna get a refrigerator when it's like four, four, four months out do i just buy anything and, and, because and, my fridge right, died you know, it's, it's not like, it's, it's not just the velocity
4: of decision making but also the dimensionality of it i mean we've got retailers that are injecting ibm weather information to forecast inventory and price adjustments because they know inclement weather could devastate a promotional weekend uh, event for, uh, you know, depending on where you are around the world. So, yeah, it's it's decision making on so many dimensions uh, yeah. and, and staying agile. Yeah.
1: And, and retail used to be slow, right? You used to have six months to plan things and you don't have six months to plan things. And, um, you know, that's and it used to be what I would call very manually driven, even with technology to say, OK, here's the here's the strategy I want you to solve for. Well, who's to say that's the strategy? Where'd you come up with that? Here's the five promotions in this category. Tell me which is the best. Well, who's to say that's the right category, the best five promotions? You know, just tell me your financial targets and I'll tell you. We'll let the science tell you what you need to do.
0: Well, hey, thank you so much for sharing these insights in terms of what's going on. It's not going to be a same kind of uh, scenario we've ever seen before. We're here with Cheryl Sullivan, president of Demand Tech by Acoustic, and you can follow her at Twitter at 1-C-H-E-R-Y-L-S-U-L-L-I-V-A. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, and thanks for being back and give us some insights on the holiday season. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you
4: very much. Thank you very much. You know, Ray, as I listen to Cheryl, I think about your thesis on duopolies. Like, other than Amazon and Walmart, like, who? how how can your average retailer without partnerships with uh you know strong companies that have data science ai capabilities how do they survive like it's it's uh it's highly volatile world it's it's tough tough. i
0: think if you don't have those capabilities you're going to be in a tough battle it's it's going to be hard Right. But we're going to see that. We're going to see that happen. Like, you know, I mean, how do you give small businesses the opportunity to actually access the same type of data Uh, and AI? Those are things that may change over time. We may see that in 20 years that, you know, having free markets and fair markets might even require that. So it's going to get very interesting to see what happens as, as, as these digital giants emerge. But, hey, yeah. we're about to get to episode 208 next week. That's <laughs> yeah. going to be crazy. Um, you know, and a quick thanks to our sponsors, Robots and Pencils. We're going to jump to 208, but we've got some awesome guests. And we're going to actually give people a sneak peek into some of the stuff we're using uh, at our conference. So I don't awesome. know. Who do we have?
4: Awesome. Yeah, it's episode 208. We're getting, uh, we're inching closer to 200, and, uh, sorry, 640 guests on Disrupt. On Don Tapscott, co-founder executive chairman at Blockchain Research Institute and author. He's a Thinker's 50 extraordinary visionary. Don is our guest. We have Lenny uh, Hansarling, chief uh, strategy officer at arrowspike We have Stefan Rowe, co-founder of Wonder, formerly YoTribe. Wow, we've got lots of guests next week. I don't know if uh, Pascal Stack, co-founder of Wonder. We've got the whole and, founding and team, actually. L- Leonard Whitler, co-founder of Wonder. So we've got uh, Triple Wonder uh, guests. So uh, is it, you know, I, I'm just looking at this five guests next week. Uh, Ray, you and I got to get our A game, and we got to start this show earlier because we've got five
0: games. No, no. I was, I was trying to help you with your count uh, on the yeah, total guess. well, I guess we're going so, to get For the those six who six don't seven. know, Wonder, Wonder is the platform we're using for, our, for basically our networking at Constellation Connected Enterprise. And it's a three-person startup in Berlin. Actually, four-person startup in Berlin that just got funding a few weeks ago. So they changed their name from Yo Tribe to Wonder, and uh, we'll be debuting it at our event. So, so it will be very fun. So right, gonna share a little bit of what they're doing, and we get all all three founders. But hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. What do you got, Vala, Anything yeah. else to add?
4: No, it's been a this this whole month has been a big blur. Uh, I'm not, I'm probably nowhere near as busy as you are, but uh, it's amazing how many conferences, customer
0: partners, every and... single keynote. You're like doing like a couple. You're like doing like three keynotes a week. That's crazy. It's...
4: Well, I'm proud to say on October 9th, um, the closing keynote for RAISE 2020, which is Prime Minister, Prime Minister Modi's event. And uh, I was just asked to deliver the closing keynote. So I'm, I'm excited <laughs> about that. Yeah, yes. thanks. And on Monday, I spoke at the UN General Assembly to the YPO, uh, a large group of uh, CEOs and uh, about sustainable development goals and yeah it's it's uh, ray it's amazing. yeah you know you and I have uh, you and I have dream jobs so dream jobs.
0: <laughs> no we're all very thankful. Thanks everyone for listening to Disrupt TV and uh, see you guys next week. so thank you ray. Bye, everyone.
4: see you next Friday.